Well, Riley, today we're going to talk about something that in the Stoic practice is called cosmic consciousness. It's also called the view from above. It's a different perspective from our everyday experience, especially the everyday experience of having eaten from the fruit and becoming in some sense separate and isolated from the rest of the totality of existence. So it's not a scientific or mathematical point of view. That's more objective. This is a spiritual exercise by which you obtain a point of view of being aware of your place, the place of your own individual existence within the great current of the cosmos, within the wider totality of the reality of the cosmos, and in the perspective of the whole, the whole of existence. According to Marcus Aurelius, the rational soul travels through the whole universe and the void that surrounds it. It reaches out into the boundless extent of infinity and it examines and contemplates the periodic rebirth of all things. You can do this as a human being. You can just sit wherever you are listening to this podcast and actually travel to the end of space, which by the way, there is none, and back without moving. You can go to any period of time and any place while sitting still. And that's a powerful experience. There's the experience of being aware of what's a, of when I say what's around you. We've, we've talked about contemplation in terms of being aware of what's around you, of, of having, of being aware of the input from all of your senses. But this goes beyond that. This is the idea of tuning in, let's say, to all the people living their separate lives on this planet. It reminds me of that song, Imagine All the People Living Separate Lives. And another way of talking about cosmic consciousness is to call it the view from above, which brings to, to mind the, the song from Bette Midler that says, From a distance you look like my friend, right? If we, if we pan out, this is about panning out, then you get a different perspective. That's what we're talking about, this different perspective that you get. There's a passage from Lucretius that I could not locate that I wanted to share so I'll have to describe it in my own words, where Lucretius is talking about a battle taking place on a plain down below in a valley, and from up in the mountains or from up in the sky, the men who are fighting and dying, you can't even tell what they're doing. You just see these, they look like ants moving around. That's the view from above. And cosmic consciousness is to realize that you're a part of that, and that's a part of you that everything that's going on around you in the universe and that every part of the universe you're a part of and is a part of you. Yeah, I like that. And I think that the way that I'm envisioning this conversation going is an expansion of the available perspectives. So it's it's one thing to say that we're inserting ourselves into the, the cosmic consciousness and becoming aware, but unless we change our perspective slightly, it's hard to become aware. We don't observe. So part of awareness is observation. And as, as we're going to discuss this further, you've got some ideas of where you want to take it. And, and you just mentioned one of them, this 30,000 foot view of a battle and how that perspective is completely different from, from being inside the battle itself. And so, so much of our availability of perspective is placing ourselves in different situations or seeing things from a different angle so that we can have a different observed subjective experience. And, and in so doing, that's how we start to absorb 
all that reality has to offer and find our place within the whole cosmos. And I think a lot of people have described this process as feeling infinitely small. When they start to recognize their place in the universe, they feel small. And I think that's a very common thing when you see, when you observe the stars, the heavens, that kind of thing, or you're out in the, the bigness, the largesse of nature, that you feel small. But I think it's something bigger than that as well that we're going to discuss. It's not just about feeling small. It's about feeling connected. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah, it's not. In, in, the, in, in one sense, you get an experience of the experience that Moses had of realizing how small you are in the universe. On the other hand, that dissolution of the self makes you a part of the whole. And therefore, you're larger than you realize at the same time. Mm. Because you've kind of expanded the, the definition of who you are. Right. Remember when we eat from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we go from paradise where we are in, when we're in unity with God, where oneness is our experience into good, bad, right, wrong, just, unjust, into this world of opposites. And so this is a spiritual practice that allows us to reinsert ourselves through a contemplative practice of being aware of our place in the entire cosmos and back into unity with all of existence. All creation. Yeah. All cosmos, all creation. So let's expand on this idea of panning out. Let's provide maybe a couple more examples. One of them we discussed last night um, that I brought up was this idea that you can be in a city, but while you're in a city, you can't see this, the city skyline. In order to see the skyline, you need to remove yourself to some faraway hill or mountain and then look back at the city from that different perspective. And by panning out, you recognize there's a perspective of the city that was not available to you while you were in it. So that's an example of that, that panning out, that zooming out to see the bigger picture. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of a 4th of July I spent on Provo Peak overlooking all of Utah Valley. And instead of having the usual experience of there are these fireworks that I can see from the nearby high school, or maybe I was on the temple lawn at the Provo Temple watching the fireworks from the, the Stadium of Fire presentation that's done at the BYU Cougar Stadium. But at, at this time, without sound, and that's one of the things that's kind of cool about it. If you think about that battle scene I mentioned from Lucretius, you, you don't hear anything either. So at this level of looking at the valley from the top of Provo Peak, what I could see are all the fireworks, not above me, but down below, that were, that were going off here and there and everywhere in the valley, and I couldn't hear any of them. And it was just such a cool experience. That's the kind of view you're talking about, right? Absolutely. I've had that exact experience, and I think that's pretty relatable. In Salt Lake, where I grew up, there's a park near, it's up in the avenues, it's called Vivian Park, and it has these really long hills, and then a plateau, and then another hill, and then another mesa on top. They'll have baseball fields and whatnot. We used to go ice blocking down those hills. It was wonderful. But during the 4th of July, or the 24th of July, we would get up on those those hills, and we would have a view of the whole valley, very similar to like an Ensign Peak or something. And I've had that exact experience you're speaking of, where you just see the flashes of colorful light 
across the valley in different locations, whether it's Liberty Park or maybe it's down further south. In any case, you don't hear it. You just see it, and it's beautiful. And you've got these celebrations going on, but it's a completely different different experience than, for instance, being right under fireworks that are firing off, and it's very chaotic and loud, and you've got earplugs in. So I think that that's a good way to illustrate how you can see the same thing from completely different perspectives, and the in the the part that you're absorbing, maybe the message or the feeling or the experience is totally different seeing the same thing play out. And if you were to take it back to the whole cityscape or skyline view, you could be in a very dirty city, a slum, for instance, with tall high rises and the streets are never swept and it could be it could be completely scummy. You'd have no idea. But then when you've moved out and you're looking back on it and all you see is sparkly lights against a sunset and you know it's a very pretty scene. And so it completely changes your perspective by panning out. Yeah, that brings to mind another scene and that's again back in Utah I'm in California now where we don't have this where I live when it snows and everything is white. It's this great equalizer. Right? When when you've woken up in the morning and it's been snowing all night and just everything is covered with snow and everything looks white. It it somehow it recalls the experience of the temple where everyone's dressed all in white. It's this great equalizer. It's really cool. So how do we want, what is the message we want to get out of this and the goal going into this discussion? We've both got various quotes or texts that we were thinking of utilizing, but what is it ultimately we're trying to learn from this discussion? Well, there are a couple of things that come to my mind. One is humility. This kind of perspective gives us a sense of humility because we realize how small we are in comparison to all of existence, all of God's creation. Another one that comes hot on its heels, of course, from that realization, you get a sense of awe, a sense of awe at God's creation. It reminds me of the time that I sat on the top of the mountain in Petra, where the monastery is at the top of the mountain. And I was looking out over towards Israel and Palestine, and a friend took a picture of me. She put it on Facebook, and she captioned it, Christopher, contemplating the vastness of God's creation. And that's exactly what I was doing. Those are those moments when that hymn, How Great Thou Art, comes to my mind right, where I'm in awesome wonder of all the worlds thy hands have made, right? So there's that, there's humility, there's awe. And then when it comes to our problems and our anxiety, this kind of perspective, whether we pan out in terms of space or whether we pan out in terms of time, and, and by that I mean there's that, that question, will this matter a hundred years from now? That's the same experience, that's the same exercise we're talking about taken in terms of time instead of space. Then our problems gain that kind of perspective and that really can be helpful to, because sometimes we're caught up in the thick of thin things and we can't see the forest for the trees. So going back to the cityscape, the idea of this panning out is to see the forest and not just be caught up in the thick of thin things and in the trees. Those are a few things, a few things that come to my mind. How about you? 
Yeah, for me, you mentioned a couple that I that I wanted to bring to mind, which is that that perspective of hope, right, as being the opposite of despair. When you're in the moment and you're experiencing difficulty and adversity, you think, oh man, there's no way out of this and you can't you can't see a way out. And so you're you're in this feeling of despair. And I think by panning out and trying to see the big picture, which is a little bit of a it's a little trite to say that. I understand because everyone experiences things in the moment and it can be difficult. I don't want to minimize that. But I think it is helpful to pan out uh, mentally, if nothing else, and just realize that this is just a moment in time and there's there's a bigger picture to be seen here. So that perspective of hope versus despair. And then the second thing was the connectedness of everything around us. And I think that will maybe become more clear as we bring up these various uh, verses or ideas or thoughts that we're going to discuss today. And maybe that's a good entry point. Um, we're, you know, a fourth the way into the discussion. So let's, if you don't mind, I'll just go into my first, I guess, verse, if you want to call it that. It's, it's actually called a logia. But I'm going to utilize today the Gospel of Thomas. It's a Gnostic. There's actually one more thing I wanted to add. I was looking for a good place to jump in. And that is, so the other thing that we get out of this spiritual practice, I'll call it a spirit, it's a spiritual exercise, right? Is the idea, you can, you can take, you can, there are different ways that you can time travel. One is, as I suggested, just to go off in your mind, just like you can travel to the end of the universe, which again, doesn't exist. You can also travel back and forth in time. Maybe it's a little bit easier to, to travel back in time, but we can also imagine, we can see the trends and we can imagine what's coming and we have imaginative people that, that some of us like to read, sci-fi authors that are doing this for us. So we can take whatever, whether we have our own uh, ideas or whether we have ideas from sci-fi, either way. But we can take, so for me, I read a lot. And I like to read a lot of history and biography. I like the quote from Emerson that says that there really is no such thing as history, only biography. And I do read mostly biography. And that's what I mean usually by history when I say history. So you can take this, this experience of this spiritual exercise, and another thing you can get out of it is a sense that whatever is happening to you has happened before, and it's going to be all right. You know, people have been through this before you, before whatever it is you're going through, people have been through it before, and they've been able to get through it. You might not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel when you're in the, in the throes of adversity, but you can take a look at those around you or, and by when I say those around you, again, I'm thinking of people in the past and you can, so this is another way of, of experiencing this, right? Through reading, through biography, through having conversations with others, especially those who are older, it takes a lot of experience to become wise. And that's why we value the opinions and the ideas of those who are older because they've been around longer and they've gained much more experience. And with that experience comes wisdom. So whether it's through looking you know, through books or through talking with people, we can get a sense of everything's going to be all right. We're going to get through this. So that's another thing. Love it. Um, you brought to mind another thing, but we'll get into it after we've kind of discussed some of these these items. So I'm going to go first. Um, I mentioned that I'm reading some sections from the Gospel of Thomas, a Gnostic gospel. And it was found in the Nag Hammadi texts, which most Gnostic gospels were 
were destroyed. And this was one of them that survived only because it was rediscovered in the, in the Nag Hammadi uh, site. Very valuable. So this one is Logia number seven, or saying number seven. And it says, most of these begin with Yeshua said. Yeshua, of course, being Jesus. Yeshua said, fortunate is the lion eaten by a human. For lion becomes human. Unfortunate is the human eaten by a lion. For human becomes lion. Okay, so just, just to clarify, the lion is fortunate that gets eaten by a human. The human is unfortunate that gets eaten by the lion. So what can we understand from that? And one of the things I wanted to get out of this discussion is the connectedness of everything around us. And this is a, a perspective or a way of seeing the nature around us as a, I guess an archetype is a word that we can use, a symbol possibly of different parts of our own consciousness. So the lion might represent kind of the wild man, the, the man that is driven by instinct or libido, um, that doesn't put a lot of thought into his actions, but just acts, acts on impulse. And if a man can learn how to eat that lion, in, in other words, to tame his, his libido or life force, then that helps him to transform into someone who acts out uh, with more care and concern for not only those around him, but for his own best interest. And the opposite is true if a man lets the lion eat him. If he, if he is governed purely by his base instincts and emotions and hasn't learned to become a master of himself. And so I think the, the way in which this relates to the cosmic consciousness or, or changing our perspective or panning out is to see the lessons that surround us all around us in nature and creation as being metaphors of our own consciousness or being, and how can we internalize those lessons? So that's, that's the first one. You have any thoughts on that? So there's another sense in which, in which we can read that, and that's the sense in which we are what we eat, and in that sense, we're all connected, right? I've been reading a biography of Thoreau, and Thoreau famously lived in a, a little house in the woods at Walden, and, you know, he was trying to be self-sufficient and he was growing some beans and whatnot, but he also fished. And he had this, this sort of anxiety about this, right? He had this angst because should he be fishing? Should he be killing the fish? And was that, you know, giving, in some sense giving in to his, his desires or was it a sacrament or what, right? So he had, a, he had a sort of an inner conflict going on around that. And in a sense, whether you whether you think we should or should not. And he did have sort of what people nowadays call animal ethics ideas. Uh, I don't know that he would have called them animal ethics, but the ideas that he, that he had were what people today would call animal ethics. So whether you think we should eat animals or not, the point is to realize that there just is no way that you are in any sense separate from what you think of as around you. This is, this is just one of the ways in which you become, well, you become what you eat, we say, right? So that becomes a part of you. Yeah, I love that. I love that you teased out a, a completely different meaning than I found. And that's the beauty of some of these passages. Is And you might refer to these as kind of like wisdom passages or Gnostic in the sense that they're kind of mysterious, but and which they are. 
that you can derive multiple meanings out of some of these. I love Chris, the Gospel of Thomas. Oh, it's it's been awesome. I've for some reason I decided to pick it up and and I've re, I'm reading it and listening to it both because both are available on Scribd. But uh, in this sense, I've been re- in this case, I've been reading it because I can really identify passages that speak to me. So here's another one. This one is Logia number twenty-two. Actually, before you read that, you know, Latter-day Saints aren't usually exposed to apocryphal writings. Uh, we sent, we certainly they don't come up in church, right? If you've been exposed, it's because you've exposed yourself outside of church. There, there is, um, there is a saying from the Prophet Joseph Smith about this. And I can't remember exactly his exact words, but he did say that there's a lot of truth to be found in them, in these writings. They have to be read, obviously, with discernment. And he did say something like that, too. But there, there is a lot of truth and there's a lot of wisdom to be found in these writings. I personally have enjoyed reading them and, and have benefited from them tremendously. I was actually going to refer to that same passage, so I'm glad you brought that up because Joseph Smith... I don't, and I was just going to refer to it, but um, you're right. There is that specific passage where he was asked about the Apocrypha, and he says there's wisdom and knowledge to be found there, but you have to use discernment, exactly what you said. So no, I think that's a point well taken. So what's the next one? The next one is, is number 22, and it says, Yeshua answered them, When you make the two into one, when you make the inner like the outer and the high like the low, when you make male and female into a single one, so that the male is not male and the female is not female, when you have eyes in your eyes, a hand in your hand, a foot in your foot, and an icon in your icon, then you will enter into the kingdom. I'm going to give you a crack at anything that came to your mind on that one, Christopher. I'd have to ask you to read it again. I was, yeah. When you make the two into one, when you make the inner like the outer, and the high like the low, when you make male and female into a single one, and one is capitalized here, so that the male is not male and the female is not female, when you have eyes in your eyes, a hand in your hand, a foot in your foot, and an icon in your icon, then you will enter into the kingdom. Yeah, you know, the first part up to where it starts with the eyes in the eye and the hand in the hand and the icon in the icon goes back again to, in my mind at least, to the idea of the unity that's found in the presence of God in the garden. And that's where it ends up. That's where the quote ends up, right? That you'll be back in that space again. So obviously, when we start to see the way that we are connected with all of existence, we become, in some sense, closer to we come closer to the truth, right? The truth is that we are all connected. We're all brothers and sisters. We are what we eat. All of this is one reality. The more we realize that, the more connected we feel and the closer to God we are and the closer we are to returning to him, the closer we are to that original experience, that primordial experience of being in the presence of God. And so I think we get hung up on the idea that there has to be opposition in all things and that we have to know the one to know the other. And that's true, but that's not the, the, the be-all, end-all. It's not the goal. If the, if the goal is to know truth and truth is one, then yes, by its opposite, by going into duality, we can now, we go 
because we're the in the presence of God, we're the proverbial fish in water, and we don't see any sense in which there can be any separateness. But when we go into separateness, now we fall into the trap of not seeing how we're actually one. And so let's not get stuck here in this place of, and, and I don't mean to, to moralize, but the invitation is not to get stuck in only seeing duality, but to return back to unity with a full knowledge and experience of what duality is, but with the realization that the goal really is to be one with God, even as Jesus said he is. Yeah, I think the way you phrase that is is perfect because we are supposed to use duality as a tool of recognition. It helps us to frame our existence in terms of what we see as, for instance, black or white or what we experience as hot or cold. They do help us frame and describe our existence. But the purpose is not to get stuck, as you said, or caught up in one versus the other, but rather to integrate both of them and realize they are part of a whole one, a capital O one. So in our existence, we're really fortunate, you know, and this is the part of the the garden, what do do I want to say here? The garden doctrine, I guess, that LDS, I think, the Latter-day Saints get right, is that we did have to leave the garden. We did. In order to be able to frame existence and understand better, but that was never the purpose for us to stay in duality. That was always to be a tool to help us learn and grow and experience. But ultimately, the goal is to get back or return to Eden, which is a terrestrial existence, a Zion-type existence, And if we're to get back there, we have to learn how to integrate the pairs of opposites. So in our world, we tend to see everything in this world as as pairs of opposites. There's various natures or tendencies that we say, oh, that's male or that's female. And we've talked about this in previous episodes as being the divine feminine or the divine masculine. Various attributes or personality types that correspond to male or female without necessarily ascribing anything to its gender or sex. That's a totally different discussion. But the divine feminine, the divine masculine, we are really to take the best of those and pull them into our own and integrate them into our own personality and understanding to be an integrated whole. And he's, he's basically drawn out these pairs of opposites and, and is teaching us to bring them together or at least see them as one integrated whole so that we can make that return. It's not so much a discussion about, you know, physical androgyny or transgenderism or saying that light is dark. It's saying that light and dark are part of one unified whole, that male and female are part of one unified whole. There's no dark without light and there's no light without dark. You wouldn't know the one without the other. And that's the point, right? That is the point. Let me, let me point to a scripture in the New Testament that says basically the same thing in a slightly different way. And this is from Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put Christ on. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. 
for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. So obviously there's kind of a doctrinal statement being made there about, you know, worthiness for baptism or after baptism that we're all children of God. And that's a great way to interpret it. But another and kind of related way to interpret that is that all are one. I mean, regardless of the fact that, you know, we've been baptized or not been baptized or we're in Christ or we're not, we're all one because we're all children of the same creation. The divine androgyne, which is the combination of the divine feminine and the divine masculine, would encompass all of the polarities into one, all of the personality traits into one, such as strength and tenderness would learn how to coexist. Intellect and feeling would learn how to coexist. Justice and mercy. And a lot of times people see God the Father as justice and Christ as mercy, and that's one way in which they embody the divine masculine and divine feminine. But both of these partners in salvation work together as one. They're not they're not pitted against each other. Christ is not against the Father, just like mercy is not against justice. They are part of one integrated whole. And although we might see them as opposites, until we can learn to bring them together and experience them as a whole, we're not fully integrated. And as, as that Logion finishes, we're not yet ready to enter into the kingdom so I'll try to bring out another aspect uh, from this, again, from this Logian. There's a related, a closely related topic to the topic we're covering, right, of cosmic consciousness, and that's cosmopolitanism. This is another ancient Stoic philosophical practice. The idea, or not necessarily practice, but the idea of it's, it's not a practice, it's a point of view, right? The point of view of being... Of all, so that when you read that scripture, it made me think of the idea that there's not one nationality and another nationality, but we're all brothers and sisters. You know, before this time, to a large extent, you have the idea of we're the chosen people, you're not. My uh, my my way is better than your way, and what what's being introduced here in this teaching is the idea of the unity of all of mankind, the brotherhood of all mankind. And another way to think of that is cosmopolitanism, the idea that the whole cosmos, the whole of existence is your city. And by city, I mean your nation. The ancients lived in smaller communities than we do today. The, the, the modern nation state is grotesque when compared to the, the ancient polis, right? Which is a community on a much smaller scale. And yet, here we're talking about the possibility of one community. At the same time, the idea of one community, of all of mankind. Yeah, I think that's very closely related to the same idea. We've talked in the first one about the nature as a metaphor of our consciousness. And the second one was kind of opposites as a metaphor of our existence and experience. I've got another one that breaches yet another dimension, I guess, of our existence, and that is time. Are you ready for this one, Christopher? Did you want to explore that a little further with the cosmopolitan? No, let's go into, into the next one. I have some quotes too, right? They're not from the Gospel of Thomas, but let's go through these from the Gospel of Thomas. 
So this next one is Logia number 42. And this one is the shortest of all of the verses in Gospel of Thomas. It says, Yeshua said, be passers-by. And this has been interpreted many ways, but the way in which I'm looking at it is, is this. Let's pretend time is a y-axis. And we talked in the last couple episodes about the ascent, the ascension. Well, let's pretend this passage of time is represented by our ascent from childhood or infancy through to adulthood and ultimately whatever our, our ultimate um, inheritance is, whether that be heaven or whatever. It's an ascension, right? And the passage of time marks our movement along this, this ray of ascension. Let's imagine for a moment that we just draw a straight x-axis, straight across that. And that represents a stoppage of time. So to be a passerby, as someone is moving along their life journey, ascending to their ultimate inheritance, kingdom of God, heaven, whatever, to be a passerby is, is someone who's willing to stop and smell the roses, to use that commonly known phrase. Someone who has found value in experiencing a present moment. So modern humans were almost entirely passive in our relationship to time. We let all these external circumstances determine how we spend our time, whether it's calendars or clocks. Our schedules dictate who we talk to, where we go, what we do at any given moment. And this represents, in my opinion, kind of like a conscious exit from that paradigm of being ruled by time. And it involves freezing the vertical time on the y-axis or the ascent towards some goal just long enough to take a stroll on the sidewalk and smell the roses. And so that's another way that we can change our perspective away from just this steady march of the robots into becoming a more integrated individual. Will you read the Logan again? I'm going to give a, a little another interpretation. Yeah, it's very simple. It says, Yeshua said, be passers-by. So to give in keeping with, my, with what I've been doing, I'll, I'll give another interpretation, another possible interpretation, be passers-by. It makes me think again of part of the idea of this idea of cosmic consciousness or the, the view from above. In, in Marcus Aurelius, and again, I'm just going to put it in my own words, in his meditations, the Stoic emperor philosopher, um, the last of the five good emperors, at the time of early Christianity, who, by the way, received uh, pleas from his subjects, the Christians, in terms of, you're a philosopher, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, Christianity is a philosophy, you're a philosopher, you should understand, let us practice our philosophy. And those were the pleas that he received from the early Christians. An idea that shows up repeatedly in Marcus Aurelius's meditations is this idea that when, when you say be passers-by, that as you sit here and look at all of history, again, going back into the past, you'll see that things come and go, right? Empires rise and fall. And again, you get the sense of, is whatever I'm dealing with right now really going to matter 100 years from now by taking this exercise and, and applying it to your experience, right? Adding it to your experience, because your experience may be this concrete here now experience and the idea of this spiritual practice 
of cosmic consciousness is to open it up to more of whether it be a wider sense of time or a wider sense of space. And in this case, we're talking about time. And so the idea is things come and go. There's going to be, let's say you're worried about who's going to be president. That's just going to happen again in four years. And if you read enough history, you realize it's always been this way. There's, we, we think that in some sense, people think that there's something new happening. And part of the idea of what Marcus Aurelius is expressing in his meditations and he's writing them, by the way, to practice this, you know, to put the spiritual exercise into practice, is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. So that's one aspect. Another aspect from, from not Epicurus, but from, from Epictetus, who wrote the Enchiridion, or the Manual, another Stoic philosopher, this time a slave. So you have an emperor and a slave. This is really a philosophy for the everyman. Epictetus gives us a sense in which this this life is a journey and while yes you might stop and smell the roses along the way you should only be a passerby you realize that this isn't the that whatever it is that you feel like you're missing in this life that you think is so important to have maybe he talks about the the about life as a, a journey and you're on this boat and the boat stops and people go ashore and they pick up trinkets, you know, souvenirs, and you think these things are so important, but in reality, they're not. They're really just not that important. The important thing is to arrive at the destination. And in fact, some people, we say, they go off and they miss the boat when it leaves, when they get left behind, or they're so worried about getting the trinkets or the souvenirs that they lose the best seat on the boat or something like that. So the idea is, again, is to be a passerby in this life and to realize that this is only a journey. The journey, the, the place where you are right now, whatever you're dealing with right now, isn't the destination. The destination is to arrive back with God, back in the presence of God, back in the unity of all existence, where none of this matters in some sense. You see what I mean? Is that the sense in which Marcus Aurelius was able to rationalize destroying Germans because he's like, it doesn't really matter. We're all going to meet up in the kingdom someday. No, not at <laughs> Is all. Is that what you're getting at? There's no sense of meeting up in a kingdom for him. You know, his, his attitude toward the Germans, and he was actually fighting the, the Germans on the northern borders of the empire at the time that he was writing the meditations, we think. And so he said, as Antoninus, I'm Roman. But he realized that as a, as a Stoic, as a philosopher, and meaning with philosophy as a way of life, that he, ha he was a cosmopolitan, that the world is his city, he says. So in that sense, is, are you saying he's a little bit of a hypocrite because he's not fully living his philosophy, which is to be lived? No, not really. What I'm saying is that he felt like, as Antoninus, that he had to do his job, so to speak. It really reminds me of, of uh, Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. I know you've read it. You have this figure who is facing a terrible battle, and it's a battle with family. And again, we're all family if we take this cosmic consciousness, right? If we take that perspective. He's facing this battle. And he has a, manifest, a manifestation of the divine. And he's really, he's 
he's really afraid to engage in the battle and he has this manifestation of the divine and what he's told is the battle is already the result is is not really in your hands that's something that just is it's something that's really in the in the hands of the divine your job is just to fight and so he's told to fight without fear of losing or without any desire of winning and just to be present and that's another aspect of this idea of cosmic consciousness the idea that the present alone is our happiness because in reality that's all there is right there's only the here and now the past doesn't exist anymore the future doesn't exist yet by the time it becomes the future it will actually be the present right so the present alone is our happiness. And so being present to, and to realize that you can be present to all of history at one time, and that you can be present to all of the universe at one time, that's what's meant by, by this idea of cosmic consciousness. And I think this was approximated by Jesus when he was teaching his disciples, take no thought for the morrow, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, sufficient to the, to the day is the evil thereof. Essentially saying nothing, and this is a very stoic way of viewing the world, to be honest, that nothing we can do can necessarily influence the way that the world continues to turn or on its axis and go around the sun. There's just bigger machines at play here, right? And I think he even uses the, the phrase, who, which of you by thinking or whom of you by thinking can add a cubit to his stature? He's pointing to the irrationality of trying to change events that are outside of our control. And it's interesting, you bring up Stoicism, and you've got such a wide range of Stoics. I mean, from the Epictetus, who's, you know, basically living in poverty, right? His name means owned. He was a freed slave. But, but he, he took a vow of poverty, essentially. I don't know if it was a formal vow, but he, he lived a very stark existence. I mean, compared to someone like Seneca or Marcus Aurelius. Well, yeah, Seneca's a billionaire, right? He's, he's, right. he's a power broker in Nero's court. He's the right-hand man to Nero, and, and sadly... But, but yet he's a practitioner, right? Right, yeah. So he has a different view of Stoicism, but the same idea that's at the core of the philosophy that all three of these men practiced was that basically what Jesus said, take no thought for the morrow, what you shall eat, what you shall drink. I mean... You can, you can only change or control what you can control. And control, in a, big, in a big sense, is an illusion. And so we ought to release thinking that we can control the world and live instead in the, in the smallness of the moments that we're in right now, where we're participating in those moments. And there is a small bit of control, but really, it's really just being a part of things. And that's the same message for Arjuna. So I've got a quote here from Marcus Aurelius. This, again, is a quote that speaks to the idea that, that there's no bound to the soul. You may be bound in terms of your body, but when it comes to the soul, there are no bounds. Marcus Aurelius says, The rational soul travels through the whole universe and the void that surrounds it. It reaches out into the boundless extent of infinity, and it examines and contemplates the periodic rebirth of all things. So you have there in that quote the two things that I've been talking about. One, that you encompass all of space, and the other, that you encompass all of time. 
because things just happen over and over again. There's going to be another president and another one after that. And sometimes it's going to be the Democrats and sometimes it's going to be the Republicans and the next time it's going to be the Democrats again. And maybe one of them or the other will have two terms and life goes on. Or maybe something really earth shattering and it's like the anti-Mason party or the Whigs or you know something completely radical happens. But in the end, it's but all even the that's same. Happened. Yes. Even that's happened in the past, right? So it's cycles of cycles. Yes, exactly. Yeah. People are born. People grow old. People die. People get married. Think about it. There's another one. When you're, let's say you're mourning. And that's a, that's a very real experience. I've had it. I, I mourned the passing of my own mother. That was one of the most difficult things I've been through in my entire life. And yet at the same time I'm mourning, someone else is rejoicing. Someone's getting married. Someone's, someone's dying and someone's being born. And this just happens continuously, right? Someone's born, someone dies, someone gets married, someone gets divorced, and life goes on. And so this kind of perspective can help put these events into a wider perspective. One that, it, well, when I say wider, I mean, of course, the totality of all experience. And to help, and so what I mean by put things into perspective, I mean it in the sense that we that we say, let's put this into perspective, right? My troubles, again, they're not they're not unique to me. They're part of the human experience. And in fact, another quote that I wanted to, to be sure to share that I'll share at this point is from Stephen Covey, who says, that which is most universal is most particular. And I think we can say the same, it works the same in reverse, right? That which is most particular is, is most universal. So when we say that which is most universal is most particular, that which happens to all people, I can relate to because I'm a person. It's like Terence says, nothing human is, I'm human, nothing human is alien to me. So if it's part of the human experience, it's part of my experience. And therefore, and now we have this, maybe not a new idea, but an idea that's in vogue of being open, of being vulnerable. That's so relatable, Riley, because when you are, because that which is most particular, when you share that which is most particular to you, it resonates with all human beings because that which is most particular is most universal. I think that's a fantastic lead-in to my fourth of five verses from the Gospel of Thomas that I want to read. This is number 77. It says, Yeshua said, I am the light that shines on everyone. I am the all. The all came forth from me, and the all came into me. This is the part I really enjoy right here. Split the wood, and I am there. Turn over the stone, and there you will find me. The reason why I love those last two verses so much is it points to the One, again, capital O, God, expressing itself in, in the chaotic, riotous particular. You mentioned the particular and what's common to all of us and how we can experience all those things. God is in all of that. You split a piece of wood and open it up, God's there. You lift up a rock, God is there. In all the details, whether order and chaos, chaos and order, vice versa, whatever, all the details, God is in those, in the general and in the particular. 
you know, I can't help but uh, take advantage of this opportunity to share a Sufi story, as I love to do. There's a Sufi ma uh, master who asks his adepts to to take a, a lamb, I think it's a lamb, and to go and sacrifice it somewhere where no one can see, or to go hide it, to go hide something where no one can see, or to go do something where no one can see, right? And so the, the adepts all go out, and the one comes back, and and the, the ones who have done the thing that they were told to do, uh, they are proud of themselves, and the one comes back, and he hasn't done it. He hasn't done the thing, whatever it was he was supposed to do, and his master asks him, well, why didn't you do it? He says, I couldn't find anywhere where God couldn't see me. Wherever you are, God can see you. And so here's a quote from Seneca in which if we are to be like God, if we are made in the image of God, and if we are to become gods, then we have to be able to have that experience ourselves. Seneca says, I'm going to translate this from the Latin, toti se inserens mundo, that we should insert ourselves into the whole of existence, right? Now, again, we are already part of existence. Here I am, surrounded by the rest of existence. But what Seneca is saying is to, to actually plunge into the rest of existence, to stop seeing myself as separate, and to now really revel in, to really bathe in the rest of existence. That's really beautiful stuff. I love that. Well, the last one I've got, and then I'll turn whatever balance of time you want back over to you, but is is this verse 111 or Logia 111. And this is appropriate for the end because it talks about the apocalypse. Well, apocalypse, what does it mean in Greek, according to your understanding, Chris? It's an uncovering. That's, that's exactly what I an found. An unveiling. Yeah. So if apocalypse means unveiling... And a, a synonym for that that we've used is revelation. In this sense, we all have our apocalypse, which may or may not be the end of the world, most likely not. But the unveiling of what is, in, in quotation marks, particularly what is, is the key, I think, to this idea that we've been discussing of, con of uh, cosmic consciousness. Experiencing things as they are, from various perspectives so that we're able to integrate all those perspectives into the whole, not being limited by filters, lenses, or veils, but rather being able to see the truth of all things as an important um, part of our experience and existence. And I think it's interesting to point out that the Holy Ghost, the role of the Holy Ghost as we understand it, is that he's a revelator, an unveiler, someone who brings the truth of all things. And it's no wonder, I think, that his primary job is to testify of Christ. Well, what does Christ represent? Light, truth. And his, his work, when he comes again, will be to, to come again in righteousness and set all of the confusion at naught. Well, what is the confusion? I think it's our lack of really tuning in to the truth of all things, convincing ourselves that the false self is the true self, convincing ourselves that uh, dark is light and light is dark. And so this, this logia, for me, it kind of points to this divine gnosis, this divine knowledge or recognition of the true self, our highest self, the divine child of God within all of us. And I, I really loved this one. So I'm going to read this one. It says, The heavens and the earth will roll up before you. The living who come from the living 
will know neither fear nor death. For it is said, whoever has self-knowledge, the world cannot contain them. And so for most of the commentators that have read this one, it, it related back to this apocalypse and parousia and the self-knowledge. I'll read it again. The heavens and the earth will roll up before you. That's, that's obvious language pulled almost straight out of Revelations, that the earth will roll up like a scroll. The living who come from the living, and that's capital L living, will know neither fear nor death. For it is said, whoever has self-knowledge, the world cannot contain them. What does it mean to you that whoever has self-knowledge, the world can't contain them? I think they're relating back to the true self, understanding the true self, that they are children of God and they are imbued with divine characteristics for, of truth, of recognizing and integrating truth into their existence. I'll see if I can give another interpretation. So when, if the, if the world can't contain me, right? If I, if I don't see myself as only a part of the world, something separate from the rest of it, but rather a part of it, meaning a part of the whole, where there's, there's not really a distinction between me and the rest of existence. If I do as Seneca says, and I plunge myself into the totality of existence, then I can't be contained in any sense anymore because I am the container. Yeah, I really enjoy that. I think, I think that's a great point. Once you have that self-knowledge, then you're, you're both the, the thing that fills the container and the container. You know, I was just going to say that. I, I should have said, I am the container and the content. The content, both. yeah, the content, yeah. Well, this has been a fun conversation. Do you have any, any other examples or thoughts you wanted to explore? Yeah, I, I have one more quote I'd like to share from this time from Epicurus. Now, Epicurus was an Epicurean. Well, <laughs> Epicureanism is named after Epicurus. He was the founder of the school. And it's interesting because Epicureanism and Stoicism were rival schools. They really have opposite metaphysics. Their view of reality is, is opposite. And their, and their resultant ethic is opposite, too, in, in that sense, uh, and for that reason. And yet, the idea of cosmic consciousness is going to be present in both philosophies. And Epicurus said to a... To a actually, this isn't Epicurus. This is Epicurus's disciple, Metrodorus. So this is a, an Epicurean, as I was uh, originally saying. Metrodorus says, Remember that although you are mortal and have only a limited lifespan, yet you have risen through the contemplation of nature to the infinity of space and time, and you have seen all the past and all the future. So I would say in closing, whether or not you already have had this experience or not, remember that if you haven't, you can. Even though you're mortal and you have a limited lifespan in one sense, not only can you rise as Metrodora says to whoever he's saying this to, that you have risen, right? But you have actually come down, and you can go back, you can return, right? You can rise again through the contemplation of nature to the infinity of space and time. Again, this is the way back into the garden. This is the way back into paradise. You can recognize that you can see all of the past and all of the future, 
You can contemplate nature and you can realize the infinity of space and time and the past and the future and you can rise again and return to the Father, return to the garden, to the presence of God and see him face to face to eat of the tree of life, which is Christ himself, and to have a fullness of joy. Using again this experience of duality as a learning experience to bring you into a full awareness of the water that you swam in as a fish before you left the water and started flopping around. Isn't that a great way of thinking of life? That's been my life flopping around like a fish out of water. I went back in the water and I and I, I imagine that through the experience that I've had, I'll have a better sense of what that means, right? I'll be, I'll be that fish back in water again and I'll feel at home in the womb of God, in the womb that is the mercy of God. Well, I hope what we've been able to do here, Christopher, in this discussion is just expand the consciousness of our listener as it was expanded for us in going through this exercise of looking at things from various perspectives and trying to integrate them into one unified whole of our experience. The cosmic consciousness, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit before. It sounds perhaps a little woo-woo, but if you, if you just take it as a metaphor for panning out on our view of the world and trying to get a different perspective that we can learn and grow from and enhance our spirituality it can be a really beneficial practice. So I've enjoyed the time, Chris. I appreciate your thoughts on these things. Did you have anything you wanted to close with? Just to say that you could think of it instead as the view from above, and that's another way to think about it. And maybe that maybe that's more relatable. Awesome. Well, as always, we hope that uh, our listeners will reach out to us if you have any comments or suggestions. You can find this podcast anywhere podcasts are, are held, at, whether it's uh, Apple iTunes or Google or Stitcher. And we also post it on the Latter-day Peace Studies page on Facebook if you want to join us there. So for Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone.